Hello, and thank you for joining us for an all-new episode of A Wealth of Knowledge, TowerPoint Wealth's original podcast. TowerPoint Wealth is a boutique, independent wealth management firm headquartered in downtown Sacramento. Here at TowerPoint, we strive to help our clients properly coordinate all of their financial affairs so you can live a happier life and enjoy being retired. As a fiduciary to our clients, we have a legal obligation to act in your best interests 100% of the time, and we welcome helping you to construct and implement a disciplined, customized, and comprehensive financial investment and retirement plan. My name is Joseph Eshelman. I am the president of TowerPoint Wealth downtown here in Sacramento. Uh, TowerPoint has been a fully independent wealth management firm for almost six years now. We launched in May of 2018. No, 2017. I should know that. Uh, prior to uh, TowerPoint's launch, I uh, began my career in wealth management back in 1999 as a financial advisor in training, or FAIT, for Prudential Securities. And Wachovia then bought Prudential in 04, and Wells Fargo bought Wachovia at the height of the financial crisis in 08. So spent my first 17 years in a major Wall Street environment. Uh, very appreciative of everything that I learned there, but uh, even happier being in a fully independent firm like TowerPoint Wealth, and where we get to do cool things like podcasts like this. Uh, so today I am joined by Megan Miller, who is our new associate wealth advisor here at the firm. And uh, not only are we pleased to have her aboard as a family member here at TowerPoint, uh, but uh, we're tickled by the fact that uh, she brings a whole, whole host of experience uh, and skills specific to uh, wealth management, tax planning, etc. But rather than hear it from me, Megan, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, well, thank you, Joe. It's great to be here and great to be at TowerPoint in general. Um, my background, I came from the world of accounting. I worked at CPA firms for a number of years, working with clients on their individual tax compliance and consulting projects. Um, graduated from UCLA, go Bruins, uh, go Bruins, go Bruins. <laughs> coming up, and with a degree in econ and accounting, uh, went straight into a big accounting firm, and then worked for a couple other firms uh, locally in Sacramento, and really uh, got to know kind of our Northern California demographic, and really was excited about the opportunity to plan for our clients um, and do more of the tax planning side. And after you know, 10, 12 years in that industry, was looking for kind of the next step in my career, and like I said, really enjoyed the planning aspect. I wanted to do something more in that space and found financial planning and wealth management space. And that really seemed like a great place to continue to build out my career, learn learn more about the planning side of things and help our clients in a more holistic, uh, full picture financial planning and not just the tax side of things. And found TowerPoint Wealth, really connected with the team here. I love that they're completely fully independent firm, true fiduciary and really appreciated the values that they operate on and how they um, interact with and serve their community and clients. Good. What other firms did you work with, Megan? Um, I started at PwC uh, straight out of college and then worked um, with a more local firm, BFBA. They've been around for a long time. There's uh, you know great people there as well. They work with a lot of local Sacramento business owners. And uh, for a firm uh, called Apperson Partners, worked with uh, some venture capital and tech space industry uh, clients over there. Excellent. Well, it's a decent segue because today this episode of A Wealth of Knowledge is focusing on uh, real estate investing and more specifically the tax consequences associated with real estate investing. 
and perhaps best said, uh, some tax opportunities or opportunities to minimize and reduce the tax consequences of having investment real estate as part of uh, one's portfolio. So uh, we're eager to, to get into our things and roll up our sleeves a little bit. And you being a subject matter expert, you're not just uh, an aficionado of taxes and an expert in taxes, but also a real estate investor yourself. Is that correct? Absolutely. Definitely been in the weeds on all sides of it, on the tax side of things, helping clients work through some of the tax, uh, actually kind of the fun tax implications and tax benefits of investing in real estate. But that's actually why I bought my first home and first investment property and second and third investment property because of some of those huge tax benefits there and seeing that in my first tax class and realizing kind of the income from a rental property that you pay tax on versus the income that actually comes in your pocket. Um, there's some nice benefits there and that inspired the real estate investing venture. Yeah, yeah. And when we talked about uh, with, with clients, you know, building and protecting net worth, obviously kind of a central part of, of what we're doing on a daily basis, um, you know, we, we discuss with clients these necessary evils uh, of, of growing net worth and protecting it. And, and one of those necessary evils are costs and expenses. But even more importantly, the other one is income taxes. And uh, we can never completely get away from those. But uh, if we do have opportunities to, again, reduce taxes, minimize taxes, uh, especially in the world of real estate, obviously so much the better. And uh, I think that's really, again, you said uh, the fun part of, of having the tax background is doing what you can to, to reduce those. I uh, look forward to the conversation today. And uh, I'll turn it back over to you in terms of some initial thoughts and ideas that you have that uh, could be helpful for those who own and invest in real estate. Absolutely. So a couple of strategies here. Um, one, just to start investing in real estate, to find that first property. Just do it. Huh? Uh, <laughs> just do it. Just jump in. So once you start getting in that investing space, whether it's actually buying your first investment property or as soon as you even start looking for an investment property or if you know this is applicable in the flipper, the wholesaler, the lender, the contractor space as well, as soon as you start doing any of those activities, um, that kind of kicks off your your business, so to speak, and your expenses that you're incurring that could be eligible for business expense deduction, even on your personal return, not necessarily um, do you have to have an entity set up to start doing that. So really, you know, once you buy that first investment property or you're looking for that property or you're starting to wholesale or you're starting to um, look for properties to flip, really just get your business going. And what that means is not necessarily setting up an entity, but just set up your separate business account and track those expenses, track that income, track those expenses, because really, even if you don't have income coming in yet, those expenses you're incurring, as long as you have tracked them well and have great <laughs> documentation, which is the point of a separate bank account and a tracking device, even something like one of those tracking devices um, or tracking apps, excuse me, on your phone, like a QuickBooks app on your phone are great to get started. And really that's what's needed first in order to look at those expenses and, uh, categorize and figure out what those are you need to know what they are before you can even have a chance at deducting those so first step there yeah once you start venturing into that business space or even this is relevant for the side hustle space or anything that's outside of your w-2 income just set up a separate bank account and start tracking those expenses are you suggesting that not everyone does that initially when they invest in real estate or it's through your personal <laughs> account or it just gets yeah. sloppy don't you... commingle huh? absolutely so a lot of people are probably starting to incur those expenses um, but not really tracking them well. And yeah. that separate bank account is just an excellent way to start doing that. Even separate credit cards, separate checking accounts, savings accounts, um, just having those separate vehicles to really delineate and make it easy on yourself and your 
CPA potentially at the end of the year to figure out what those expenses were and to deduct them and reduce your income and your yeah. taxable income. Yeah, keep your CPA happy. That's another good piece of advice as well. Yeah, they're not a big fan. You show up with uh, personal and business <laughs> statements, their bank statements commingle, and you got to highlight what's yeah. what's business or not. And save yourself some billable hours. <laughs> yeah, and if you're tracking them through, you know, an efficient app on your phone like QuickBooks, really just snap a picture of the receipt. QuickBooks app uh, tracks your mileage. This is not an advertisement for QuickBooks. There's a number of app, yeah. apps out there. That's just kind yeah. of the tried and true one that uh, we know and recommend to clients. Yeah, so you know, get more serious about it and, and treat it like a business, right? Absolutely. And I, I did hear you say earlier that you don't actually have to formalize a business entity to still you know, approach this in, 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 as a business, if you will. Could you maybe just briefly clarify that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I hear in see some investors think that they initially need to start an LLC to do their business. And while there are a lot of benefits to an LLC, you don't have to have one set up and in order to track and deduct your expenses. There is a perfectly good schedule on your individual tax return for a sole proprietorship, and you can easily report your business income expenses on your individual tax return, no separate business entity necessary. Do I have to itemize in order to gain the benefit of those deductions? No, so that is what is is so uh, beneficial about business expenses. Uh, separate to your itemized deductions, this is a whole other form. Um, Good to know. And it's not a part of, I don't know how deep you want to go into the itemized deduction, standard deduction, but especially now that the standard deduction is so much higher, those itemized expenses such as you know W-2 employee expenses aren't as beneficial because the standard deduction is so high and you have to cross that high threshold right. in order for those to really have a, a material additional benefit. So right. that's, you know, whether it's real estate or not, I mean, highly recommend real estate, but any side hustle, this is a similar concept to once you start those, those side business activities, a portion of your cell phone becomes deductible, a portion of your home, a portion of your car, um, all becomes deductible. So that's really the benefit of starting a, you know, business as opposed to just, uh, a W-2 uh, right. job. And that's great, too. The W-2 is great for, for qualifying for all those real estate loans. Definitely keep that. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> don't let that Banks go like inco- if you have it. <laughs> demonstrable income. <laughs> but uh, if you would like to, you know, it has to be earnest business effort, obviously. But if you'd like to start being able to deduct expenses you're already incurring, um, starting a business or starting a side side hustle venture is a right. great way to do that. So even if I take the standard deduction, if I'm doing these things, I can still potentially deduct them. Absolutely. Yeah, good to know. Um, so I know another issue that comes up oftentimes for real estate investors, and, and this is just a general tax concept, help us to better understand, Megan, the difference between these deductions that you're talking about um, versus a tax credit and how that is intertwined in the world of real estate investing. Absolutely. That's an important uh, first step to delineate and, and better understand. You hear these tax benefits and you know, you can get a tax deduction for this or a tax credit for this. And what exactly does that mean? And I remember walking into my first tax class in college and had zero idea. So I think that's <laughs> not that's something that we may take for granted that not everyone necessarily knows the difference between. And um, it's a big, a de- big difference, right? Huge difference. So a deduction um, has less impact dollar for dollar than a credit. Mm-hmm. Deduction reduces your taxable income. So a $10,000 tax deduction on a $100,000 income would give you a taxable income of $90,000. Right. A tax credit um, directly reduces your tax liability. The tax itself. The tax itself. Okay. The tax itself. So if you have $100,000 of income, 
is that your tax rate's 20%. Gives you $20,000 of tax. A $10,000 credit would reduce that $20,000 of tax liability to yeah. a $10,000 tax liability. So it's literally dollar for dollar. It's a dollar for dollar reduction of your tax is a credit, and a deduction is a, re- a reduction, reduction your tax. Yeah. of your taxable income. Got it. Yeah, big uh, important difference for people to be aware of, no doubt. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the things that you can deduct as a real estate investor. Are there a top five or six that you typically see once people get into doing this or people who have been doing it for years? Yeah, absolutely. There's some great ones that I think are not obvious. And then there's some other ones like your business meals and entertainment that I think uh, everyone knows about, but some people are kind of afraid to deduct for, uh, audit, audit purposes. So we can walk through a couple of those and how best to, you know, take those. And I think, a couple of the big ones that people miss are your your business mileage. So, for example, if you have an investment property, anytime you drive out to that property, drive by it, go check on something, go pick up something from your tenant, all that mileage um, is is deductible. Hmm. And you can track your actual auto expenses, but really the IRS simplifies this quite a bit and gives you an amount each year. It's usually around sixty cents per mile. That you can deduct, so that's that's quite high. If you start adding that up, if you have a property that's 15, 20 miles away, you're going to visit it a few times a month. Um, yeah. If you're doing some of the work yourself, you know, again, getting back to that track, track, track. There's a ton of cool apps out there that'll track that for you. It'll track all your driving. You swipe right for non-business, swipe right for, right. Not for too business, complicated. Just, yeah. and just keeps that that tracked. And I think a lot of people would be surprised at the end of the year to realize how much they drove for their business and. Even better if you have properties out of state. Anytime you go visit those, fly to those, travel to those, your your flight yeah, now, there, now your you're accommodations cooking with gas. while you're out there. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can really. Uh, what about like a trip to your your CPA, um, who's helping you with your real estate investing? And the t- I mean that does that count as well? Yeah, absolutely. So Other professional advisors. Yep. Yep. All of your um, professional and legal fees related to business expenses. Uh, sorry, related to business tax returns or business consulting, you can deduct um, those expenses and fees related there. Good. Um, a couple of the other ones. Yeah, we had, we talked about uh, business travel, um, meals, business meals. So if you, again, this is kind of, <laughs> tends to be a little bit of a gray area, but usually the rule here is, you know, ordinary, necessary. If you're a real estate investor and you're taking out potential homeowners who are going to, you know, you're looking to buy their home, to a meal or you know out that's sure. pretty ordinary in the course of your business and the um, kind of fallback rule is if an expense is ordinary and necessary in the course of your business you know that can generally be uh, a valid yeah. business expense deduction yeah. i've heard that the uh, different way to think about that is can you look an irs auditor in the eye who may question this and feel comfortable as answering yes and do you have the documentation for and it you do, yes uh, <laughs> that's, that's the, yeah. Seems pretty important as that's, well. That's a tax sound <laughs> coming out of me. Document, 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 track, track, track. Yeah, absolutely. Um, qualified business income. Um, help us to better understand how that relates. Absolutely. So the qualified business income deduction is something that came around in 2017 with the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and really to incentivize small business. Um, again, start a business, uh, start tracking your expenses, Start that separate account to really delineate your business income and expenses because this uh, qualified business income deduction is a 20% deduction of your business income. So said another way, uh, this is an incentive. If you were to make $100,000 of business income, 
that top $20,000 would be a deduction off the top. They just and so knock you, it off? They knock it off the top. And so wow. you'd be only paying tax on that $80,000. Wow. And that's available um, currently through the end of 2025. Uh, that may get extended or may not, but definitely uh, is a great perk and other tax benefit that's currently available. Is that a hard dollar cap or a percentage cap? I... It's percentage. Okay. A 20%. It's no 20... cap? There is a cap. So if you're above... Don't quote me on this off the top of my head, but I think around three hundred and fifty thousand um, okay. dollars of of taxable income on your income tax return, so joint or so not unlimited, but not unlimited, but yeah. a solid, um, you know, a solid deduction. That's a pretty high threshold there. Yeah, that's 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 seemingly a pretty nice tax opportunity to take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've had clients ask me in the past, and I've had to do a little bit of research, but could you help us better understand the, the potential benefit, maybe drawback as well, of a family business when it comes to owning and investing in real estate? Yeah, so have a, a family business is really encouraging uh, if you are operating solo to get your family involved in, in, in these following ways. So if you have things that you need done that you might pay someone else for, maybe you get your kids involved. Maybe you have a high school kid or a middle school kid who, you know, got, just got one of each. Could could use a li- <laughs> could use some income and could uh, use some hard work to earn that income. Yeah. Um. So that could be money that you might pay them anyways an allowance. And if they're working for your business, um, the family business strategy is really looking at how do we shift income from your higher income tax bracket to a lower income tax bracket and okay. provide a, an overall lower tax bracket for your entire family. Got so it. so they're earning it at 10 or 15% versus and paying tax at 10 or 15% versus you at, you know, whatever 25 30% plus. Yeah, I mean if you're if your kids are each working 10 hours a week, paying them $15 an hour, um, you know, $150 a week for them, they're only in the 10% bracket. So that's you have two kids, that's about $15,000 of income. Maybe you say that's a lot of money to give your kids, but I'll, I'll talk about another strategy in a second if you don't want to put all that in their pocket. That is a, you know, $15,000 is a tax deduction for your business. So if you were at the 32% rate and your kids are in the 10, that's yeah. a $3,500 tax savings right yeah. there. Well, so six, that's yeah, yeah, pretty impactful for a lot of money that you may have paid your kids anyways an allowance or, hey, can I have 20 bucks for dinner here, 20 bucks for dinner there? And if, again, track, track it and document it. Um, but if you're doing it the right way, that could really be beneficial for money you might be giving your kids anyways. Yeah, definitely adds up. My daughter, Josephine, 16 and would like to purchase a new car or not new car, but a car for herself. Does she want to work for it? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I've got my wheels turning about, uh, you know, potentially I own a few pieces of real estate as well. And, you know, we'll see if we can weave that into our overall tax minimization strategy, but definitely a good opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And kids can do, you know, a lot of things, you know, your younger kids can get in your office and do some shredding, shredding for you or filing or organizing, mailing, stuffing envelopes. You and, you know, if you have some older kids or, you know, can do help you out with social media, your marketing, they can do some painting or small repairs on your rental properties or gardening, landscaping. You know, um, if you're a realtor, they can help you put out your signs or, yeah. you know, clean that, clean the property before and after, make phone calls for you, generate leads. Yeah. Uh, all those things that, you know, one takes it off your plate, enables you to go do more higher and better things. Uh use of your time and two, you know gets them engaged uh gives you a deduction and sounds like kind of overall win-win yeah absolutely good um that you've talked about before megan and i think it's useful for our listeners the the double dip 
on rental properties. Sounds interesting. What uh, what exactly is the double dip mean? The double dip. That is the reason I got into real estate, and it <laughs> it feels like you get to deduct your mortgage twice. It's kind of what it feels like at a high level. Okay. So how this happens is when you own an investment property, you can not only deduct the mortgage interest that you pay on it, okay, on your mortgage, right. But you can also deduct something called depreciation. Okay. And it's basically you're deducting the purchase price of the property mm-hmm. over its useful life. So of, you're deducting... the, of the property itself. Yes. So okay. the IRS has a fun random number for us. It's 27 and a half years. <laughs> uh, I know our mortgages <laughs> are 30 years. It'd be nice if those lined up, but they don't. Yeah, um, of course not. So what the IRS says is that if you purchase a property for say $500,000, that property has a quote-unquote useful life of 27 and a half years, um, which gives you depreciation expense of about $18,000 a year. So you're... So that's deductible also. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Hence the double dip. So you get the interest and then you get the depreciation on top of that. So how that that works when you're paying your mortgage, if, if you're not currently aware, when you have a mortgage... For the first, you know, five, seven years of that mortgage, uh, a large portion of that payment goes to interest. Mm-hmm. It's not 50-50. It's not right. largely principal. If you look at your mortgage statements, the first couple years are, you know, 90, 95% right. interest. So a, a bulk of that mortgage payment that you're making is interest and is deductible um, both personally, if you have a personal uh, primary residence, deductible. But for an investment property, you get the depreciation expense on top of that as well. So really on your tax return, because of this additional depreciation expense, mm-hmm. that you're not, you know, it's not a double payment. You're not paying the depreciation. Right, right. It's, a, it's just a tax deduction. Right. The, the cash in your pocket is almost always significantly higher than the um, rental taxable income that you're generating on your tax return. Got so. It kind of feels like a free income situation. Well, I mean, yeah, there's it, a lot more in your pocket than you're paying than you're paying tax they're on. They're giving you credit for that depreciation and that obviously helps your cash flow if you're paying less in tax because of the deduction. Yeah, exactly. So essentially you're deducting the interest and the principal. Yeah. Through Excellent. The depreciation. Yeah. You cannot do that with stocks and bonds and mutual funds. So Yeah, nor your personal primary residence. Right. Right. Hence some of these tax benefits to help reduce your overall tax obligation. Um, so, you know, some people buy real estate, invest in real estate and hold it for a while. Other people are looking to turn it or flip it relatively quickly. Um, you know, obviously the goal is to sell that at a profit, uh, needless to say, but how do you, how do you potentially think about or look at minimizing any taxable gains if you're flipping properties? So for flippers, we call this the long game and this, you okay. know, obviously has to make sense for your business, but. If you're newer or if you have some time to hold a property, the long game for flipping. Um, so let's walk through a traditional flip. Uh, you're buying an investment property, which one means you have to put down at least 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, it's likely held less than a year. Okay. So what that means tax-wise is that the income or gain that you generate when you sell that flip is subject to your ordinary income tax rate, so up to the 37% tax So a short-term rate. gain. It is a short-term gain. Okay. So short-term gains, there's no preferential tax treatment. It's all subject to your ordinary income tax. If you were to hold that, hold that for more than a year, you may be subject to the preferential long-term capital gains rates, right. which you know, 
10 preferential to meaning lower right <laughs> yeah low lower yeah. 15 20 percent rate um but if you go into this property as your primary residence if you buy your home buy the property you would have bought as a, as a flip as your primary residence so you buy something that needs that needs work, mm-hmm. and you have a couple years that you plan to live in the house and fix it up. So you're, you're saying move into at some point. This has to be your primary residence. Okay. So that's how the strategy works. Uh, if you live in the property as your primary residence for two years um, and then sell it, so you've, you bought it as your primary residence, you live in it for two years, um, when you sell that property, there is a large gain exclusion. And it's called the primary residence gain exclusion. Yes. And if you've lived in the house at least two of the last five years, okay. a single person can exclude up to $250,000 of gain. Of gain. Okay. Of gain. So Zero no gain. tax. Zero tax. Right. Zero tax. But you have to live there for two of the past five years. Correct. Got it. Correct. Okay. And uh, for any um, married filing joint taxpayers, the gain exclusion is half a million dollars. Wow. Okay. Well, hey, let's hope the profit is half a million. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's obviously tremendous. If, if you want to move into your investment property to you know, call it your primary residence. Right. So that's a long game. If you find a house that needs uh, repairs, it. and you could do this every two years. Got it. So if you find a property, live in it, your primary residence for two years, uh, they tried to get rid of this through legislation a few years ago. It did not pass by a long shot, which is great, great news <laughs> for the future. Um, but it's a, it's a great strategy for, um, for flipping. And obviously this has to work with the market and you know, that's always a factor in, in, in where prices and rates are going to be in a couple of years and, you know, more, more relevant as of late. Um, it has to make sense all around, but from a purely tax perspective, you know, purchasing a property as your primary residence, living in it for a couple of years, fixing it up and then selling, uh, is a fantastic tax strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely something to keep in mind if you're, you know, buying investment real estate to potentially also not have investment anymore and be your primary residence. There's some you know, huge tax benefits to that. Um, obviously you got to consider the utility of living in the place as well. Um, what happens if I own investment real estate and I die? Um, I understand there may be some tax benefits, obviously not to me, I'm dead, but uh, to those who are inheriting the investment properties? Yes. So I think you're mentioned, talking about the inheritance um, versus just giving a property or passing along a property to a, a, a child or heir while right. you're still around. Um, passing on a, a property investment or otherwise through um, inheritance or through an estate plan Mm-hmm. The, the heir of that property gets what's called a step-up basis. So okay. if you had bought that property for $100,000 and it's now worth $500,000, okay. if you pass that through inheritance, your heir, uh, their new basis in the property is the, the $500,000. Is the market value. Is the market value at when your I, death. Okay. Right. Okay. And they can sell that if they want and don't pay a dime of tax. So if they were to essentially sell that, assuming the market, you know, stays level between the period of of death and sale, um, there would be no no gain. Wow. So essentially that $400,000 of gain that was on, you know, the parents' books. Yeah, um, if they would have sold it before they died. If they would have sold it before they died or if they would have transferred it before they died. If they were to transfer it before they died – the the cost basis um, to you would have still been that hundred thousand. So if you would have then Got sold it for five hundred, yeah. 
you would still incur, you know, that's going to push you into the max tax bracket right there. Yeah, we have had clients that, you know, have the intent of ultimately passing their home on to their children. And, you know, they, they sometimes don't realize that, you know, it's much, much better. <laughs> and it might sound morbid that, you know, don't transfer it while you're alive, but, you know, live in the home until ultimately you pass away. And that way, you know, obviously the children then, to your point, can sell that and not pay the government. At least, you know, as far as our example goes. Yeah, absolutely. There are some very high limitations there. If your state is over, uh, I think, $11 million or $22 million as a, uh, a joint couple. But right. those are very high and, yeah. and you know, most estate tax considerations. Right. Most most people, um, yeah. that, that gain is uh, excluded from taxation. Got it. Um, cost segregation. Uh, I think that's one of the final points here. What It sounds sophisticated. What does that mean? Yeah, that's more of an advanced strategy um, for some of our serial investors out there. And what it really comes down to is, you know, the depreciation expense we talked about previously and how the IRS gives us that number of 27 and a half years for the entire home. What cost segregation does is look at breaking down each component of that home to ideally get a, a, sh- a smaller um, average number of years to depreciate over, meaning you get a larger depreciation uh, okay. per year. So, so the it, denominator is, is lower. Yeah, so it looks at breaking out, okay, the roof, maybe that useful life is 20 years, the fence is 10, the HVAC is 15. Right. Breaks out those in their components um, Okay. To, to allocate that cost in, in hopes of a higher current year depreciation Got expense. It. And Got it. So that you does you require... apply the 27 and a half uniformly. Right. And that is, uh, again, more of an advanced strategy because it does require a professional firm to do that um, preparation. And there are obviously expenses involved with that. So it's really, um, it'd have to be a, you know, weigh, weigh the cost of doing that versus the benefit of doing that there. Got it. Excellent. Well, thank you. Those are excellent ideas and tips and strategies to maybe not eliminate the tax consequences of real estate investing, but uh, certainly to reduce and minimize. And that's really the goal. Yeah, absolutely. Before we continue, if you've liked what you've heard so far, hit that subscribe button to subscribe to A Wealth of Knowledge, our podcast here. We regularly will be publishing updates and new information and think it'll be worth your while to take a look and to listen to what we have to say. Follow us also on our YouTube channel where we regularly publish educational and topical videos. Joe, so from the you know investment management, wealth management side of things, you know how are you seeing clients invest in real estate, and are you seeing any other uh, you know benefits from your side, and how to um, you know help mitigate the the tax impacts here? Yeah, um, excellent question. I mean, obviously, a lot of our clients here at Tower Point have done a great job to build net worth not just through securities and and you know traditional stocks, bonds, mutual funds, etc., but you know certainly a built net worth you know through ownership of real estate, be it personal residence or what we call investment real estate. And Megan, I think one of the things or one of the major ways people leverage the tax benefits of that investment real estate is through what's called Section 1031, which I'm sure you're familiar with, of the uh, IRS code. Yes. (laughs) And uh, basically what a, a 1031 does or allows for is uh, for an investor to exchange real estate or personal property, but in the case of this topic, you know, let's just say investment real estate uh, that was held for rental or investment purposes, they can exchange a property, uh, let's say a rental that you own or, or multiple properties, for other properties or other real or personal property that will also be held 
for investment purposes. So when we say exchange, it basically allows you as the investor the opportunity to defer those capital gains uh, that we talked about earlier in our conversation. Uh, as long as you follow a couple of important uh, steps and rules along the way, uh, you can sell an investment property that's appreciated and not pay a dime of income tax. And I'm sure you probably see that with some of your you know, colleagues and, and you know, former tax clients. Um, you know, 1031s are pretty powerful. You know, please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, absolutely. The 1031 exchange, you know, uh, selling an investment property and using uh, the proceeds to buy another investment property is, you know, a great way to leverage rolling those gains into another property without paying tax currently on, on the sale. Yeah, I, and, and it's interesting here at Tower Point too. I mean, you know, we, we're, we're you know, working with clients very intimately to help them properly coordinate all of their financial affairs. And certainly tax management and minimization is a central, uh, you know, spoke of that wheel, if you will. Um, the one area that we've been focusing on with a lot of clients, A, is to help them better understand and quantify, you know, what the ROI or return on investment is on a rental. Uh, and once we see that, you know, do we want to continue to hold this thing or would it be better to sell that? And uh, if the decision is that, hey, this, you know, this property is really only, you know, let's say giving us a, a 2% return, you know, quite frankly, that's not very attractive. And, you know, we may want to consider a different property or something different, which a 1031 allows us to do. And again, not pay any uh, type of tax on the exchange itself. So instead of paying, you know, 20% back to the federal government and state of California, um, if you have all that capital working for you, uh, you've got uh, a lot more money to compound rather than give it to the taxing authorities. Um, so I, I would imagine, Megan, typically you would think or you see that when, when you are a real estate investor, you know, what's the first thing that people think about with a 1031? What do, they, what do they do with the money? Right. Where's the next property? I have to identify it within 40 days, close within 180. It's often um, kind of a, a race and a stressed time and often investors uh, you know kind of pressured to buy something that they might not be ideal uh, because that, that window is so small good yeah excellent and, and that, that you know obviously is a good segue in our conversation here where there are some rules the IRS says hey we're going to make this 1031 available and allow you to, to have these tax-free exchanges again which is wonderful but you, you, you've got to you know kind of check a few boxes along the way um, importantly it's important that people recognize that you cannot ever take possession of the money when you sell your investment property. Exactly. And if you're going to do a 1031, um, you have to go through a qualified intermediary, um, basically an escrow agent, to, to hold that money uh, before or ac ac as it goes from point A or investment A over to investment B. Um, so you had said that there's kind of two parts to a, a, a qualified transaction um, could, could you briefly touch upon what those two were again? Yeah, absolutely. So just as you mentioned, you have to have a, a qualified intermediary um, take possession of the proceeds from the sale of your first property. Um, in that process, the, the qualified intermediary, it, their role is to you know help you get this 1031 exchange done within all the rules. So they do provide a lot of guidance here, but it's um, 45 days to identify a, a new property from the sale of your uh, original property okay. and 180 days to close. So if you're in the commercial real estate space, that's uh, that's often tough to find um, an adequate property in those 45 days. Yeah, and, it's very um, constrained. Yeah. Well, and especially you know, at least lately, you know, the the supply of of properties that you know, at least here in California and even nationwide to a lesser extent, 
you know, it can be difficult to find something that you want to own as part of the 1031 and to only have, you know, a month and a half basically to, to actually identify that, to qualify for the, the capital gains, you know, tax-free benefit that's associated with a 1031 can, can be a bit problematic. Yeah, and if you have a substantial gain, um, you know, finding property or properties that can uh, cover the full proceeds, because you have to roll over the full proceeds amount into a new property. So okay. if you have something that's substantially appreciated, finding one, two, three or more properties to, um, in order to exclude all of the gain is often a challenge as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, broken record, we've seen people struggle just with identifying uh, what they may want to own next. Yeah. And, and with that being said, here at Tower Point, we've, for the past few years now, have spent a decent amount of time working and helping to educate clients on an alternative um, to physical property. Uh, the alternative still qualifies uh, as a, it's 1031-able, if you will. Um, but instead of uh, the investor having to identify and buy an actual physical piece of property or a new investment property, um, they can also, and I think you're familiar with this as well, Megan, own what is called a Delaware Statutory Trust, uh, or DST for short. Um, and, and basically what a DST allows for is for the investor to own a fractional ownership or a piece of typically a larger or commercial piece of property or pieces of property. And so, uh, you know, it's not suggesting necessarily that, you know, owning an, an, another piece of investment property is bad or good or the DST is some kind of panacea in lieu of owning physical property, but it's definitely an alternative um, that we've seen people uh, take advantage of. And oftentimes the ROI that I was referring to earlier of uh, a commercial property, which is, again, what you actually own a fractional interest of when you own a DST, uh, can oftentimes, you know, A, can appreciate uh, as long as the underlying property does inside of the DST, and B, oftentimes we see the, the, the rental or the, uh, the return just from an interest or an income standpoint be, be higher with the DST as well. Um, have you seen in your career at Intax people know what DSTs are? Are they are they unfamiliar? I'm just curious what your experience has been. Right, I feel like DSTs are they're not new, but I feel like the awareness of them is relatively new. And you know, I actually hadn't learned about them until uh, maybe a year ago. So absolutely not. I don't think they're common knowledge. Um, I think they are uh, either more advanced or newer or you know, newly yeah. popular, um, not to say that they're kind of a popular fad investment by any means. Um, no, but they've grown. Yeah, yeah they've definitely grown. There's more options for DSTs. Um, and so I think the, the new growth of DST availability uh, combined with more awareness um, is, is fairly new. They weren't largely used, or at least not to my knowledge, in the past. Yeah, well, and it's always good, obviously, as an investor in real estate and, you know, you're looking to reduce and minimize taxes to know you've got other options in addition to buying another property, I mean, I'm sure you're aware, being an investor yourself, you know, there's a much higher degree of liability, uh, you know, personally, when you own investment properties, which, you know, is something that really isn't much of a consideration from a DST standpoint, because there literally are hundreds of owners or fractional owners uh, of a DST, so that, you know, really is, is amortized over a much larger, you know, uh, ownership base. Um, the other important point about a DST is you can get some ge geographic diversification as well, um, not to mention the fact that, you know, you, you have some exposure to commercial real estate rather than residential, 
uh, which obviously is important. But, uh, you know, typically, and I, I'm sure you probably see this as well, people tend to, you know, invest in new properties, you know, physical new properties in locations typically close to where they live. Um, and with a DST, it could be, uh, you know, a strip mall in Atlanta or student housing in Columbus, Ohio, or, you know, a warehouse in, uh, you know, New Mexico. And uh, having that geographic diversification, I think, is important as well. Um, you know, one key point with a DST, you do have to be an accredited investor typically to own or, or buy a fractional share, um, which means you have to have at least $200,000 of income if you're single or 300000 if you're uh, you know, filing jointly or a net worth of a million dollars, which might sound like a lot, but uh, at least for those of us that are, I would say, fortunate to live here in California, oftentimes if you own some real estate, it doesn't take long to, to see that net worth grow. So good to have options and good to know that there are some other things that are out there and available and uh, you know, 1031-able that doesn't necessarily have to be an individual property itself. Yeah, absolutely. I think you touched on a couple of important points. And as, as much as we like to sometimes think our investment properties are passive, I think who, anyone who owns an investment property knows that's not always the case. You're always pulled in the weeds sometimes for some issue, even with professional management. There's um, you know some of your active time required. And, and DSTs, uh, it, it sounds like really cut down on that act. <laughs> Passive or not so passive involvement? Yeah, it's really hands off. I mean, you literally just sit there and every month, you know, you collect your check. And, you know, we've seen too a lot of times when people will own investment real estate, um, there is a general, I shouldn't say general, but there can be a tendency to, to not raise rent or to keep rents the same uh, for their tenants. And uh, due to the nature, the commercial nature of the properties owned inside of a DST, you know, I'll cite Tower Point Wealth as an example. When we signed our lease here at the Bank of the West building in downtown Sacramento, uh, we signed a six-year lease, and inevitably, uh, there are there are uh, rent escalators built into the lease, which basically means we've got to pay more on a year-by-year basis in rent, and uh, not so good if, if you're the one signing the lease, but uh, if you're the one owning the property and uh, can have a re- reasonable expectation to potentially see your income continue to go up as those uh, lease and rent escalators kick in. As an investor and as an owner, that's uh, not necessarily a bad thing. Thank you for listening today. We certainly hope you've enjoyed our podcast. For more information about Tower Point Wealth, give us a call at 916-405-9140. Check us out on the web at towerpointwealth.com or on all social channels. Just search Tower Point Wealth. Thanks again, and here's to the health of your wealth.